Oh man, Miles, I am so excited. What's up, Rachel? We've got a bunch of Captain Britain this episode, and a bunch of Captain Britain means we're almost at- The Mutant Massacre? Well, that too, but I was thinking more about the high-spirited, dimension-hopping hijinks of Excalibur. Ah, the light at the end of the tunnel. We'll need it after the coming cascade of Grimdark. So that's got me thinking. Captain Britain is like a multiversal constant, right? To some extent. I don't know that there's a Captain Britain on every Earth, but they're definitely the best organized set of alts out there. How so? Well, first of all, and this is a big one, they're aware of the multiverse and of each other. The Captain Britain Corps are basically the multiversal defense squad and tribunal. Are they all Brian Braddock? Dude, Brian Braddock hasn't even been the Captain Britain of 616 in years. I mean, a lot of them are variations on him, but that's far from a constant. But they are all British. Or they're Earth's equivalent. So, for instance, the one from Earth 744, which is the Earth based on Orwell's 1984, is Captain Airstrip 1. Now, there's usually variations on Captain Britain, so Captain UK, Captain Albion, Captain England, and so forth, and of course, Captain British. Captain British. Right. Captain British is from Earth 9047. He ran around with the X-Persons until Dust Kitten decided to break off and form Expialidocious. What?! Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 63rd episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. So this time we're going to be tackling the New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men annuals of 1986. Both of which are expeditions into, or at least tangential to, the Mojoverse, which we first encountered in the Longshot miniseries. And this is also the second year in a row where the annuals have followed basically the same structure which is to say a New Mutants annual as sort of part one of a general story and Uncanny X-Men as part two. Now, if you are new to the podcast, we would recommend at this point going back and listening to episode 49, which introduces Longshot and the Mojoverse and a lot of components that are going to make their way into both of these annuals. It's not strictly necessary to follow along, but it'll give you some good background and foundation to build on. Yeah. Uh, plus, it's just great because it's Longshot, and I love Longshot, and I love Anna Senti, and I love Art Adams, and it's wonderful, and read it. Well, we're going to definitely be getting some Art Adams here in the second annual we're looking at, but the first one has a different artist, and I think this might actually be his first foray into the X-Universe, and that is one of our very, very favorites, Alan Davis. Yeah, now, Alan Davis, uh, I know him most as the artist that worked with Chris Claremont for a very long time on Excalibur. Ditto, and also from the Captain Britain graphic novel with Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool getting kind of a, a preview of all that British uh, interdimensional nonsense this time around. He is the best at smiles and swoopy hair. Yes, he is. I like to think that even body hair is very swoopy. You don't really see a lot of it, but I think just everything is swoopy. All, all hirsuteness. So these are annuals. They intersect a little bit oddly with continuity, although it's pretty easy to place these at least. We can solidly say that they're after Rachel Summers has left the X-Men. So after the stuff that we, we covered most recently when we looked at the title X-Men. Let's look at the two team lineups really quickly, just so that we know what we're diving in with. So starting with the New Mutants, their deal right now is they're sort of functioning more independently than they were when Xavier was around, now that Magneto is the new headmaster. Right. Xavier is in space with his space girlfriend, having space hijinks and recovering from injuries and briefly death incurred across a number of X-Men arcs. Yeah. So right now we have sort of what I think of as the core nine team members of New Mutants. Those being Cannonball, Mirage, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Karma, Magic, Magma, Cypher, and Warlock. And they've been in kind of a state of flux. The team split apart for a while after Secret Wars 2. The Beyonder had killed and resurrected them. It was awful. They were all understandably screwed up from this experience. And the last few issues of New Mutants that we'd seen going into this were kind of getting the band back together, getting the team back together, and trying to feel out their new dynamic in the wake of that. Now, as far as the X-Men, uh, they kind of have their own status quo going on right now. We've got on the team right now Storm, who's in charge, and she has no powers, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Shadowcat, and Rogue. 
And up until recently, Rachel Summers, the alternate future daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey, was on the team as well, but she got stabbed by Wolverine and went through a dimensional portal, and it was all very complicated and tragic. Well, she specifically went into a dimensional portal to the body shop run by Spiral, and that's something I want to actually talk about briefly, because it seems really weird to me that she doesn't even cameo in either of these annuals, since she is specifically with Spiral during this time period. Right, and I think part of that is there were a couple characters in this era that were kind of in flux. So, for instance, Longshot was supposed to get an ongoing series after his miniseries, and didn't. And Rachel Summers was supposed to get a miniseries herself chronicling what happened to her in the body shop and in the Mojoverse. That didn't happen either. And again, that seems like something that would have intersected so naturally with these annuals, at least, you know, in passing, either as a promotional cameo if they were doing it separately, or at least as a nod after the series had been scuttled. But alas, that is not the case. We're not going to see Rachel Summers again until Excalibur. However, Longshot is coming right up, and we will get to that shortly. Longshot the character is coming up soon. Longshot the series has long since passed. Uh, yes, yes indeed. It's, so, it's good to be precise about these things. Let's dive into New Mutants Annual number two. Now, the notable thing about that numbering is that it's actually the third New Mutants Annual, but the last one was called New Mutants Special Edition number one because it was too long to be an annual, and apparently there are rules to these things. Yeah, there are very specific rules as far as what constitutes an annual, and so as a result, you get a ton of, like, New Mutants specials and summer specials and, like, various not-quite-annuals that are basically annuals. But anyway, so New Mutants Annual number two. Um, Like we were saying, this is, of course, by Chris Claremont, as are most things in this era that are X-related, and the art is by Alan Davis. And Alan Davis at this point is working mostly on Marvel UK titles. He has co-created Captain Britain with Chris Claremont some time ago. And actually, let's take a minute to talk about Captain Britain, because this is coming out of a Captain Britain storyline, and that is a storyline that at this point I think most American readers would not necessarily have been familiar with. Yeah, I mean, Captain Britain, he'd appeared in America before he was in Contest of Champions, he was in a Marvel team-up issue with Spider-Man. Yeah, he was Spider-Man's roommate for a while at Empire State University. That's so bizarre and random, and I have so similar color schemes. They Um, could do laundry together. But yeah, he'd gone through a lot of really epic storylines that were largely unknown on American shores. I mean, there was the Otherworld saga, there was the Jasper's Warp storyline. What had happened most recently was that his sister, Elizabeth Braddock, a name you may be familiar with if you're a longtime X-Men fan. Hint, she's Psylocke. And now you're all familiar with. She uh, had recently taken up the mantle of Captain Britain, become that hero briefly, and uh, in the process had fought a villain called Slaymaster. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slaymaster? Uh, yes, Slaymaster. That's a terrible name, and it also makes me kind of think that he should have been attended by eight tiny villainous reindeer. Well, to be fair, I haven't read that specific issue, so I can't deny that he was. But it's spelled S-L-A-Y, so I suspect he's just really a master of slaying. Yeah, but you wouldn't know it if he said it aloud. It's true, it's true. I mean, most villains don't show up with business cards. He, he might have a Hello, My Name Is uh, label on his chest. Maybe he started out as a good guy, but people kept on assuming, you know, Slaymaster, what, like Santa or something, and it gradually just drove him to evil. Uh, I think that's probably a better supervillain origin story than whatever his actual one is, so I'm going to go with that. It seems reasonable, but what Slaymaster did that's directly relevant here was severely, severely defeat Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, and among other things, this fight cost her her eyes. Yeah, like not that they don't work, but in fact, she doesn't actually have any eyeballs in her head. Whoops. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much where we pick up, although we will certainly come back to Captain Britain stuff in a future episode before we get to Excalibur. And uh, the first thing we see in this issue is Betsy Braddock skiing in Switzerland, despite her lack of eyes. Right. Now, what we're told is that she's been compensating telepathically. And this is going to be one of those psionic powers work in plot convenient ways things, because it makes sense if she's in environments where there are other people and she can basically hitchhike along with their senses. Makes no sense otherwise, but she still does it. 
Well, she's sort of princess-like, you know, she's got this Disney princess vibe going on at this point in her history. So maybe there are just like little birds and woodland creatures that follow her around and she sees through their eyes. That are just barely off panel? Uh, yes, that are just barely off panel. I mean, Ellen Davis does draw super, super like Disney princessy hair. Helen Davis hair is this very specific thing. Like once you read a couple issues, you will understand it's all about side parts and these sort of amazing swoops. I love his style because he's very, he's a very, very good, very expressive figure and facial artist. And he's a little bit cartoony and very sort of buoyant. They're just sort of exciting and engaging and happy, even when really disturbing stuff is going on, which certainly does happen. You just sort of want to be part of that world. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful aesthetic. And I've got to say, again, Excalibur was one of my first X-Men series that I really read a lot of. And a lot of what sold me on it initially was Davis's art, was seeing out of context panels and covers and bits and pieces from it and thinking, yeah, I want to read those stories. Mm hmm. So yeah, Betsy finishes skiing, and uh, she's sort of hanging out, bemoaning her lack of eyes, which nobody really knows about, when all of a sudden, a couple of very familiar figures appear out of nowhere. These are Mojo and Spiral. Mojo and Spiral, again, first appeared in the Longshot Limited series. Let's talk a little bit about who they are and what their deal is, because they are weird. Well, at this point in continuity, what their deal is is still kind of ill-defined. What we do know is that they come from an alternate dimension where the ruling species are called spineless ones, and they're sort of these large, bulbous, human-ish people who are sort of wired into robotic chariot things with spider legs. Well, one of them comes from that alternate dimension because Spiral is actually Ricochet Rita. She was originally human, and she was captured and just significantly warped by Mojo over a very long period of time. That's been alluded to subtly in the Longshot Limited series and, and later, but we're going to get much clearer hints of that and some flashbacks to Rita much later. Yeah. Now, what we know about this universe that Mojo comes from and Rita was turned into Spiral in is that it's sort of media-obsessed. So there are these human-looking people, and they're kind of a slave race that's used in gladiatorial arenas and stuff like that for the entertainment of the spineless ones. Yeah, it's basically a universe organized around complicated snuff films. Uh, essentially, yeah. Now, it's not very fleshed out at this point. Later on, it's going to become a very clear analog and allegory for Western entertainment culture, Right now, you can see the seeds of that, but there's not a lot of specifics. And I will add, if you are familiar with the X-Men animated series and you want a brief and bizarre and kind of splendid introduction to Mojo and the Mojoverse, there's an episode of that that is one of my favorite instances and uses of Mojo, because again, this is, this is all about satire of Western entertainment. And putting it in context of a Saturday morning cartoon really kind of raises that satire a notch and adds a degree of self-referentiality that I think serves it very, very well. Now, what the cartoon episode does not really capture, because it can't, is just how terrifying Mojo is. He is a legitimately frightening villain. Right. Going through these issues, the, the thing I realized that kind of crystallized this for me is that Mojo is powerful enough to apply cartoon logic to non-cartoon universes. And that's really, really frightening. Think about how cartoons work. Think about how physics work. Think about how, you know, death and life and injury work in those and then imagine someone taking that logical system, someone who's powerful enough to enact it. I'm not talking about kids jumping off roofs because they think they can fly, but like someone who's powerful enough to significantly warp the reality around them, applying that in a normal world, in a normal context. The best analogy I can think of, and this is a DC book that comes very close, is the Animal Man issue, The Ballad of Wiley e. Coyote. By Grant Morrison, yeah. Yeah, which is phenomenal, by the way, and which you should look up and read because you will never, ever, ever see Looney Tunes the same way again. <laughs> yup. So anyway, Mojo and Spiral are here, and they go ahead and knock Betsy out. 
Mojo talks about how he wants to reshape her, and uh, they refer to her for the first time as a name we have not heard yet. We, as hypothetical Marvel UK readers, that being Psylocke. Had she never actually been named in, in the Marvel UK story? See, I haven't read any of these. Most of them just aren't available in any format. I think my earliest Captain Britain is the more Davis graphic novel. It's the same thing for me, but I did do a little bit of research, and I believe she was just Elizabeth or Betsy Braddock, and she's only called Psylocke starting in this panel right here. Uh, listeners, if you have counterexamples or if you have specific citations for this, we would love to see them. Again, this is kind of a huge gap in material that we've been able to track down and had access to. None of this is on Unlimited. None of it's really available in print. And we would love to track more of this down. We're going to be doing a spotlight on Captain Britain sometime in probably the next month or two before we go into Excalibur. And yeah, I'd love to get some more background before we do that. The next place we're going to see Psylocke is on TV in this bright, animated, sort of scintillating, cheerful kids cartoon called Wild Ways, where she appears with sort of cartoon toned down versions of Spiral and Mojo. And this has captivated children across the globe. Including Liang and Naga, who are the New Mutant Karma's younger siblings, including uh, three of the children we saw in the Longshot Limited series, who are later going to be called the Fat Boys in Daredevil, but for right now are referred to as the Brat Pack. And who are originally a reference to the Walter Simonson Star Slammers. These are, man, I feel like these kids are kind of the antecedent of the continuities. Uh, they are, and they're also, even before that, a reference to the Little Rascals, or Our Gang, so layers upon layers. They're fairly meta-children. Yeah. We also have, watching the show, Megan, who's the sort of childlike romantic partner of Captain Britain. And from the New Mutants, Rain Sinclair and Roberta DaCosta. These are the two youngest members of the team. And something that I think this issue particularly kind of highlights is that fact that they are characters who are still very much kids, despite any pretension to the contrary. Yeah. As all this is going on, Captain Britain has been searching for the last year, which was when his sister disappeared at the beginning of the issue, for Betsy. And so he's finally managed to track her down to this warehouse in Manhattan, and he smashes in, and suddenly we see these sort of parental voices scolding him, and him regressing more and more into a scared, scared child. Now... I wasn't sure at this point what this was a result of, whether it was the, the powers of whoever was acting on him or whether it was his own powers taking a twist, because part of Captain Britain's deal is that his powers are mediated by his confidence, kind of like Gladiator. Right, of the Imperial Guard, totally. But we'll find out more about that later. For now, we have Roberto waking up in the middle of the night, that being Sunspot, dialing a number on the phone and hearing, do you want to walk the wild ways? And responding, yes, oh please, yes. At which point Mojo and Spiral appear in the kitchen of the Xavier School to take him away. So that's basically our intro to this issue. You know, if this were an episode of the X-Files, this would be the stuff that came before the credits. If this were an episode of our show, it would be the stuff that came before the cold open, because we actually even get kind of another title page, another first page. And that comes by way of a very, very frustrated Doug Ramsey cipher. Yeah, and he's just sort of doodling. Uh, he actually doodles the title, Why Do We Do the Things We Do, along with a really cute picture of Warlock. I kind of feel like if you lived in a house with Warlock, you would just be doodling him continually because, I mean, he's a living doodle. That's his thing. And uh, he's just frustrated with the way things have been going as far as him not really having a place on the team. And at the same time, there's some more frustration going on in the danger room itself. You know, I think that's worth touching on because Doug is kind of a peculiar case among the New Mutants. There's the question of his powers, or rather the question of how people treat him because of his powers, which is goddamn ridiculous because there are plenty of members of the New Mutants who don't have combat applicable powers, who still train with the team, and yet they somehow become convinced that he's the only one who doesn't. But also, I think it's worth noting that he is the one of the group who is a local kid. Like most of these students were recruited by Xavier to the Xavier School as an opportunity for them. Rescued from adverse circumstances, they were mutant kids who weren't in control of their powers, whose powers were adversely affecting their lives, who were targeted 
Doug is not any of those things. Doug was doing just fine, and he basically got sucked in by the New Mutants when an alien crash landed in their yard to come translate for them. He's a local kid, so he's also got the most direct contrast between his life before and his life now. His parents live in town. He's got friends in town. That's how we knew the Xavier School, because he was friends with Kitty. And so he's gone from this fairly, you know, connected, really relatively normal teenager to whatever the hell he is now, which is sort of a superhero if his teammates all let him, which they usually won't. Right. And he's not the only one who's frustrated. We see uh, Mirage and Cannonball training in the danger room, and they're talking about, as they go through some relatively basic exercises with Cannonball's powers, how ever since they were killed and resurrected by the Beyonder, it's like they never learned how to use their powers at all. They're basically now at the point that they were at when the New Mutant series started. Meanwhile, we get brief capsule introductions to other characters as well. Magma is writing a letter to her father. Ileana is setting the table with some demonic assistance. And as all this is going on, Cypher and Warlock are trying to clear some dead trees from the yard, just, you know, doing Xavier school chores with uh, Cypher in a sort of Warlock robot suit around him. Which has been their solution to the, no, no, we can't let Cypher go into battle because his powers are translation dilemma lately that he's basically been wearing Warlock like a mech suit, which is pretty hilarious. They're going to amp that one up this issue. That's going to shift in some fairly important ways. But for now, the two of them are out in the yard clearing trees with what at least appears to be Sunspot. Yeah, so they ask him for help, and Doug's like, hey, just you know, use your powers, it's going to be fine. They lift a tree, and then there's a scream, and the next thing we see, Roberto da Costa, Sunspot, is dead, having been crushed by the tree. Now, Warlock and Cypher are racked with guilt over this. You know, Bobby had insisted to them that he could handle it. Obviously, he couldn't. None of the new mutants are sure what to do either, because they feel like maybe they should inform his family, but Magneto's not there. So they just sort of bring in his body and they've got it covered up with a sheet, at which point they discover, because Cypher wanders in to go be guilty next to it, Warlock follows and points out that it is in fact not Bobby's body. Right, and so they do a bunch of research, which starts out feeling kind of ghoulish, but they get more and more excited as they realize that this is a scientific problem, that their friend's not really dead. Right, that this is a very, very high-quality android, and you'd think that the next logical move here would be to go after either Arcade or Stephen Lang who are the previously noted sources of perfect X-Androids in the Marvel Universe. And so they start tracking the energy signature, which is something Warlock can do because he has sort of ill-defined, vague powers, which I have no problem with whatsoever. And as this is all going on, we do see a cut to what's going on with Mojo and Spiral and Psylocke. Mojo and Spiral have given Betsy new eyes. She's got these bright mechanical eyes and like Mojo now and sometimes like Spiral, her face is sort of pulled into this rictus grin. It's very sort of clockwork orangey. And this is kind of what Mojo does. He wants to make everyone beautiful. And of course, for him, that means making them like him. And I mean, I'm all about, you know, different conceptions of beauty, but Mojo, I don't think would be very many people's conception. Well, he is from a different universe and he is a scary dude. One of the things that I think is interesting about Mojo, one of the things that I think is a pretty good character beat for him is that when he transforms people, you can always see the stitches. You can always see the strings. So with Betsy, she's got, you know, her face literally clamped into this grin. You see characters, you know, with Mojo masks stapled to their faces, stuff like that. It's really brutal. It's really harsh. And it's not very polished. Again, it's that crude cartoon logic. It's the I can staple one face onto another face. I can make this person smile. Kind of like the Joker, if the Joker were pretty much omnipotent. You know, there was actually a DC Elseworlds like that, Emperor Joker or something. That's terrifying. It is really, really, really terrifying. Oh, man. It's a horrifying miniseries. 
But anyway, what Mojo does is he uses the powers of Psylocke, she's now under his control, to then piggyback off Karma's younger sibling's powers. And, and he's also recruited them. He's been recruiting these viewers into the Wild Ways the same way he did with Bobby. So he's got Karma's younger siblings and they're now grown up. And so he uses the combination of their powers and his own to transform all of his prisoners into sort of idealized, beautiful adult versions of themselves. So who do we have in this group now? We have Gong Naga, and they are Template. Template is sort of the uber parents. They have the power to kind of warp other characters, but also they sort of have ultimate parental authority. And we also have those three Brat Pack members, Butch, Darla, and Alfie, and we're going to get to them in a little bit. And we have Sunspot and Wolfsbane. Right. And they've all been transformed into adult superheroes with the New Mutants characters. Those are basically adult versions of themselves with the same power set. With the Brat Pack, they've all been given superpowers. Butch is Snitch, and he sort of creates interpersonal discord. Alfie's name is Straight Arrow, and he can, I guess, shoot arrows? He shoots them very straight. He's one of the less developed of the transformed characters, but the most interesting one of the Brat Pack, I think, is Darla, because she's got a recognizable codename and power set, ones that we will see show up in X-Men much later. Yeah, her name is Jubilee, and her power is to make a bunch of sort of fireworks, light show stuff appear to disorient and damage the people around her. I feel like this is something we've seen Claremont do before, that he's got a concept and a codename that sort of shows up in a one-shot, and then again becomes a regular thing in a different context. We had, you know, Maddie Pryor, the little kid in a random emergency room. I mean, I figure it's not plagiarism if you're plagiarizing your own work. Well, it's not plagiarism, but it is confusing. And I think it's one of the things that I love. It's a byproduct of it is that it makes continuity look much more convoluted than it even actually is because you've got those name and power overlaps. And this is already a really complex timeline. (laughs) It is indeed. And so the New Mutants eventually do show up and are kind of thwarted by these characters, especially Snitch who's able to kind of get them fighting each other so much that they don't even stand a chance against the rest of the Brat Pack. See, Snitch? You thwart! (laughs) That's what you do. And eventually, Template shows up and basically makes everybody all obedient, so all the new mutants are now prisoners as well, with the exception of Warlock and Cypher. Now, Warlock, as you may recall, has some serious parent issues. Authoritative parents, to him, very specifically trigger fear of being immediately murdered because that's how his species works. The warlocks, which are the young of the species, challenge and fight to the death the magi, who are the adults of the species. So Warlock just basically grabs Doug and takes off when when Template starts getting scary. And so uh, after Doug calms him down, they go to check out what's going on using Warlock's spy eye, which is sort of a, a periscope tentacle eyeball thing. I love Warlock. I like Alan Davis drawing Warlock so much. Oh yeah. I mean, he's tapped into the whole Warlock is a cartoon. Warlock is a scribble. And again, Alan Davis has that sort of buoyant, bright, slightly exaggerated cartoonish style, and Warlock translates into it just seamlessly. You know, one of my favorite things about Warlock, actually, is seeing the ways different artists interpret him, because they're all very different, and each of them brings something very, very different to the character. I think at this point, my favorite is still possibly Rick Leonardi from New Mutants. I love the way he draws Warlock. Interesting. I am sort of torn. I like Sienkiewicz a lot. I like Davis's Warlock because he's very, very expressive, and he's very physically expressive, and I think actually similar ways to Leonardi's, but a little more cartoonishly, which Mm -hmm. works well for me. I'll buy that. And so, yeah, they see, uh, no surprise, the captured New Mutants going through the same process everybody else did, being turned into these idealized adult versions of themselves under template and thus Mojo's control. So they're trying to figure out what to do, and they find this crying teenage boy clutching a familiar red, white, and blue mask. Now, this is the de-aged Captain Britain, and he sort of knows who he is, and he sort of knows what's going on, but he's also sort of been regressed to a scared kid. He's also randomly naked. That's a thing. 
And so uh, Doug basically guilt trips Brian into going to help out. Um, Currently, Amara Magma has rebelled and she's running away. And Doug's like, hey, you're a hero. You still have your powers because you haven't been regressed to be young enough to not have them anymore. And it's a really good thing that the New Mutants uniforms have some redundant pieces. Yes, yes. Doug splits his uniform up, which means Brian's wearing the top half of the New Mutants uniform and the yellow underwear portion as well. Well, no, they're they're basically the the uniforms are basically leotards over tights. Yes, but the point is it still looks ridiculous. It looks really stupid without the tights. And so uh, Brian does his best to charge into battle. Uh, Amara asks who he is. Can't you guess? A knight in borrowed armor, fighting with borrowed courage. I feel like part of Brian Braddock's official power set is histrionically dramatic exposition. I have nothing bad to say about that power set. That really never stops. Oh, yeah. And so, anyway, long story short, they decide to split up and try to rescue the new mutants. Brian points out that Mojo and Spiral are planning to take all these kids to the Wildways permanently tonight, so there's no time to, say, get help from the X-Men. Psylocke is at the core of this. Mojo is manipulating her, and she, using her psionic power, is effectively manipulating all of these kids. They have to stop her. None of them are telepaths, but there's a workaround. Because Doug realizes, well, she's essentially been reprogrammed by what Mojo has done to her. He sees she's sort of this Mojo, spineless one-looking machine woman at this point. If I could only get into her head, my power is to understand language, and I could fix it. And Warlock says, hey, I have an idea. And... Warlock and Doug merge. This is, I will note, not a euphemism, although, again, going back to my notes for the panels, I've just got queer subtext not just for the ladies anymore. Yeah, there is certainly a bit of that. This is intense, and this is something that is going to become a really, really big deal across this series, is Doug and Warlock discovering that they can basically merge bodies and psyches. In theory, Warlock could do this with anyone, but I don't think anyone would be up for doing this with Warlock. Like, it's a big deal, and it's a big deal that involves the possibility of infection with Warlock's transmode virus. And as a refresher, that transmode virus is what he uses to eat. He essentially turns organic matter, like, say, animals or plants, into circuitry and then sucks out the life energy. And this is a one-way process that will definitely kill whatever organic life form it touches. Right, into inanimate circuitry. That energy that he sucks out of them is no longer powering them at the point when he sucks it out. And this is a highly contagious virus. We haven't seen it weaponized yet. Except as Warlock feeds, but it Boy, is eventually... Boy, will we ever. Yeah, it is going to be one of the largest threats to the Marvel Universe to come out of the series. Absolutely. This is in some ways kind of its genesis. This is the first time we really see that kind of infection and that kind of merging used in a context other than Warlock feeding. Yeah. And so uh, Doug is able, as Douglock, to get into Betsy's mind, but it doesn't really go so well, and he's very quickly sucked into the wild ways. Meanwhile, he and Warlock are starting to think as each other. They're technically still sort of two separate entities, but their psyches are blurring and merging. They're using each other's speech patterns, you know, with their own individual knowledge bases, etc. Yeah. And so Spiral is at the center of the Wild Ways. Now, it's unclear how much of the Wild Ways is its own alternate dimension, how much of it is just inside Psylocke's mind. And how much of it is possibly the Mojoverse. I sort of think of the Wild Ways, along with the Body Shop, as kind of a liminal universe. It's connected to or derived from the Mojoverse, but it sort of exists in its own discrete continuity. Yeah. And Spiral, using her power, which usually comes from her kind of dancing through time and space, manages to turn all the Brat Pack, Cypher and Warlock, uh, Brian and Betsy, who she pulls in, into these sort of centaurs and puts them on this big metaphorical and also literal carousel. Sure, why the hell not? Yeah, it's really weird, guys, and I really love how weird it is. So what I came out of this issue mostly thinking was that I really, really wish that some network 
in the late 1980s had given Chris Claremont and Nascentian Alan Davis, the three of them specifically in collaboration, a cartoon and an unlimited budget. Because Claremont and Nascenti are very, very good at writing each other's characters at, at sort of a blend of their voices. We've talked about Claremont's voice as a collaborator before in context, I think, most significantly of Bill Sienkiewicz and Frank Miller and the ways he adapts to and collaborates with different artists. And that's true very much with writers and writing other people's characters and worlds as well. You know, we talk about what differentiates you know, mid-Claremont like this from later Claremont. And for me, that's a really big piece of it. I feel like Claremont is at his by far and away strongest as a writer when he's writing in collaboration, when it's his voice with someone else's, because that's something he's very, very good at. And when he becomes by far and away the driving sole narrative force on the books, I think he loses something like comics are a medium uniquely and intensely suited to collaboration and to creating holes that are greater than the sums of the parts. And Claremont's strengths early on, and especially as he becomes more versatile within that medium, have a lot to do with that, have a lot to do with his relationships to artists and the relationship of the art and the narrative components and bits and pieces of different voices and worlds. And that's something that he is at peak game at right here. Yeah, I mean, opinions vary as to when the best Claremont is, but I think you could absolutely make a compelling argument for that being this era, like around 1986. A lot of people think he sort of stops being as good in the dark times after X-Men 200. I would disagree. I mean, it's all high quality, but this stuff, I really don't think it should be overlooked. It's fun and strange, and I love Claremont when he's strange. Well, and it's a very, very different type of book, type of story, and type of creative and publishing environment, which matters. I mean, again... One of the things that has defined the shifts in the X-Men line, especially in the late 80s and early to mid 90s, is the shift in power dynamics and relationships between writers and artists and in relation to Marvel books and Marvel editorial. And again, that's a place where I feel like you're losing something because the best Claremont work comes out of those intense collaborations. And as again, the power dynamic shifts back and forth and goes very far in one way or another, you lose that. So anyway, all of that industry context entirely aside. Um, is it ever really aside? Well, no, it's not. Um, context is everything. It's true. Context Nothing is exists in a vacuum. Dust sometimes. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cat fur. So, you know, Spiral's spinning her, her mad merry-go-round around, and it's actually Doug who eventually resists and pulls himself out and says, no, even if this is this perfect pattern where we all fit, which is something, of course, I have wanted, subtextually, I'm not going to do it. And he rips his smiling mask that she's created over his face off, kind of pulls himself out of it. And between him and Psylocke, who he quickly frees, they pull this whole thing apart. They pull everybody off the merry-go-round, and Spiral is left basically powerless inside Betsy's mind. I want to talk about Doug again. I want to talk about Doug as kind of the heart of the New Mutants, because I think he really, really is at this phase. This is the era where we've seen him consistently as the New Mutants' moral compass, as the one who, you know, pulls them back to, like, when they go after Empath, what we're doing is wrong, this is not who we are, this is not what we do. And he's the one here whose sense of identity, even merged with Warlock, and especially merged with Warlock, is enough to break through this programming. Yeah, for me, he's kind of, in this era, the equivalent of what Kitty was for so long in X-Men. You know, he is the character that a lot of the readers are going to be most like. He's comparatively normal. He's led a relatively, you know, straightforward life thus far without any sort of aliens or demons or anything like that. And so you can really sympathize, and that makes him an excellent viewpoint protagonist. So Spiral's in Betsy's head at this point. At the same time, though, she's the only one who has the power to get them back home, but it comes at a price. Which is that Spiral gets to go free to presumably wreak more havoc in the future. Spoiler, yes, yes, she will. And also that it means they'll undo everything that was done in the Mojoverse, which means, among other things, that in theory, Betsy loses her eyes. Right. And they eventually agree to it. Betsy's like, hey, I've been here before. I've been homeless. I've been lost. I've been hungry. I've been blind. 
but I'm not going to let you do this to me. Live free or die, bitches. Basically, yeah. And so... Only, like, with an aristocratic British accent. (laughs) So that happens, and uh, they all wake up back in the real world with a naked Elizabeth Braddock sort of sprawled over Doug Ramsey. Um, There is awkward adorableness, and there's also a moment of the realization that, in fact, Betsy still has her eyes, which she decides she's just going to kind of quietly keep. Right, and that's going to be significant that she and Doug are the only ones that know that she still has Mojo's eyes in her head. Right, because no one else knew her eyes were gone. That's right. And Doug isn't going to tell because Doug has a huge crush on her and also is super flustered because she's just shown up uh, randomly naked. She ends up walking out, I believe, wearing Warlock. Yeah, Doug says to Warlock, just remember your manners, partner. So I kind of want to talk about Betsy and Doug because this creeps me out. Really? I find it kind of adorable. I think part of it for me, I mean, this bugs me for the same reasons that Kitty and Colossus, that's a couple bug me because I'm cool with like Doug having a crush on Betsy because she's gorgeous and amazing and badass. Making it mutual. I mean, there's a hell of an age gap here, isn't there? She's what, in her 20s? At some point, he's 15 or 16? Uh, You know, age is always a hard thing in comics. I always got the impression he was around 16 and she was around 19. So yeah, they're on opposite sides of 18. But for me, that wasn't too creepy. And I'll freely admit, part of that may be that it's a gender thing, that I'm less creeped out by the idea of a slightly older woman involved with a slightly younger man. Mm, See, I'm not particularly... Honestly, I I have a whole other diatribe on that that is not particularly germane to this issue, but it's... Yeah, I think it's a problem either way. I do think the the decreased age gap makes a significant difference. If it's 19 and 16, that's one of those, you know, slightly narrowing my eyes, but basically okay with the things. I am curious as to where you got her as that young, though, because I assume she was older, but maybe she's not. It's really hard to tell, I mean, with most artists. And we do know that she's very inexperienced with her powers. We do know that she's led a high-profile but also somewhat sheltered life in Captain Britain. We're going to find out in the next annual that she's closer in age to the X-Men and the New Mutants, but again, Colossus is only like 19 at this point, too. So that doesn't necessarily say much. Again, this is a point where I feel like maybe if we'd read more Captain Britain, we might have a more solid grounding. The age issue is one that's going to come up again and again, because part of the issue with comics, and especially superhero comics, is that teenagers look like adults a lot of the time, and it's very, very hard to gauge characters' ages from appearance. So you've got things like Warren Ellis jumping into right Excalibur, and just going based on early Excalibur, because there's one significant agent, because Kitty turns 16, but I don't think he got back that far, and assuming that she was in her early 20s based on the way she was drawn, writing her as such, and writing her in a relationship with a dude in his late 20s, which is completely not okay if she's in fact 16. And so that's a consistent problem, and I think it's a consistent problem with Davis, because Davis is someone who tends to age characters up a little bit, and especially female characters. It's true. But that will largely uh, just be sort of subtextual. We know that they're both interested in each other. Nothing is really going to come of that, because, well, by the time anyone would have a chance to, both characters will be dead. Albeit Betsy will be immediately resurrected, but, well, we'll get to that later. I do really wish that it was a dynamic that they'd revisit in the modern era, especially after Doug's resurrection, because I think the ways both of those characters have changed in the last decade or so would make that dynamic and revisiting it very, very interesting, because for both of them, it would be kind of a relic of a younger, much, much more innocent time. And at the same time, they've changed and sort of been warped by circumstance in remarkably parallel directions. Mm -hmm. They absolutely have. So anyway, we have our happy ending here. Captain Britain, who's re-aged up to his beefcake adult self, just, you know, grabs Doug by the shoulders. And here is the lad to whom we owe everything, who's proven himself beyond all doubt the noblest of friends. And Doug carefully, you know, bites his tongue to not say, totally want to vote your sister. (laughs) Yes, that's probably a bad plan. And so they all head back to the X-Mansion, including Psylocke. She realizes, hey, other people have gotten in trouble because of my lack of experience too much. 
I really need to be here. I really need to learn how to use my powers so I'm not a liability so I can really make the world a better place. With great power comes great responsibility, Betsy. Exactly. And so she sticks around. The other new mutants sort of drag her off to play baseball, which is, you know, what you do. As Mirage and Cypher sort of ponder how that all went and recommit themselves to the ideal that came up a few issues ago in New Mutants, that the purpose of the team is to take care of youth, to take care of the next generation, to make sure the kids are all right. Is that actually a theme in New Mutants? It is a stated theme that I don't think they really follow through on, but at this point, it is totally the mission statement. Okay, I'm, I'm down with that. I think looking at that gap would be interesting. Something you see again with New Mutants in later years, and especially in more recent iterations, is that they tend to be the team that picks up characters and people who fall through the cracks, who are, you know, not necessarily on the X-Men's radar, which does often translate to younger characters. Although, again, I, I saw it more as, as finding sort of liminal outsiders than necessarily children. Well, often the two overlap. And so that's pretty much that story. And uh, like we were saying, like 1985, in 1986, the Uncanny X-Men annual comes out a little bit after and basically picks up the narrative threads of that and runs with them. And speaking of children, this issue is notable primarily for sowing the seeds for some of the most recognizable weirdo spinoff characters in the X lineup, and those are the X-Babies. Yeah, now we should be clear, I think we were a bit ambiguous in our next time on Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men last episode. The X-Babies don't actually appear here. We do see the X-Men get de-aged into children. That's actually what will give Mojo the idea later on of making the X-Babies to, you know, up his media ratings in the Mojoverse. Yeah, what we see is the visual and narrative basis for the X-Babies. And that again lies in the Mojoverse, and in this case lies specifically with the character Longshot. Speaking of things that first show up here as X-Men concepts, Longshot was previously only seen in his own miniseries. This is where he first shows up in X-Men, kind of out of nowhere. And what's really weird about this, okay, so I mentioned that Longshot was going to have his own miniseries and that was canceled, so he was thrown into this book. That means that when he does appear, we have very little context for where he had been since the miniseries. He also appears in this issue in a way that does not make sense as far as chronology. Right. This issue takes place definitely after Rachel Summers has left the X-Men, which at least tentatively places it, and based on the other lineup and book, before the Mutant Massacre. Right, because the lineup of the team changes in the Mutant Massacre, and we still have the pre-Mutant Massacre team membership. However, Longshot isn't around during the Mutant Massacre, and, you know, you can no-prize this away fairly easily. You can say that he is not trained, he's not a member of the X-Men, he has no memory, there's no reasonable way they'd take him out into the field. But regardless, it's kind of weird and kind of a glaring continuity iffiness. Yeah, and it's not exactly an error, but it is something that takes some explaining away and takes some extra-canonical explanation. So, where does Longshot show up? Why? In a Danger Room open, of course. Yeah, Danger Room cold open, take a drink. Yes. Danger Room cold opens are the new Kitty's costume changes. <laughs> I think so. And so, um, yeah, you know, we go through all the X-Men training in various ways. And we also have in the control booth, Cypher and Psylocke. And uh, Psylocke is actually wondering, well, okay, so we have a new mutant training the X-Men. Where should I be? I mean, I'm brand new with my powers, but I'm a little bit older. Should I be an X-Man? Should I be a new mutant? Should I be neither? Doug brings up, well, Kitty is an X-Man, and she's younger than a lot of the New Mutants. But yeah, it's an interesting question, because Kitty kind of got grandfathered into the X-Men, because she was around before the New Mutants were a team, and X tried briefly to push her back. We actually talked about this. Kitty's also a character who, based on the way she interacts with people, I could see being the kid who's let to sit at the grown-ups table, because while she's developmentally and emotionally very much a kid, very much a teenager, she's very good at parroting the kind of language and demeanor that makes grown-ups think that they can talk about grown-up stuff around you. Totally. I and speak from experience. <laughs> yup. 
And so, uh, you know, as these, uh, this pondering is going on, like we were saying, out of nowhere, a big energy ball appears in the middle of the danger room and out pops a very confused long shot drawn by the artist who originally created him, along with Anasenti. That artist is Art Adams. And that means that, among other things, this will be an issue chock full of cameos. I doubt we'll catch them all. Yes, chock full of cameos and chock full of uh, differently amazing hair. Okay, so I really, really like Art Adams's artwork. I really like Art Adams' long shot artwork. I progressively from there get less and less enthusiastic with Art Adams. There are a lot of moments of his I love. There's a lot of sort of enthusiasm and dynamism I like, but there's a stiffness, especially to the way he draws figures and faces, that I have a lot of trouble getting past. I I mean, I can totally see that, but for me, he just has such... Uh, stiff though it may be, still such energetic and engaging and often very offbeat art that I can't help but love it every panel. Also, the way he draws Storm's hairline really bugs me. <laughs> Take it, it up with her stylist. Just, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's Storm's hairline. Are you going to tell it it has to make sense? I'm not messing with Storm's hairline. I feel like when you've got a very detailed art style, details matter more. Perhaps. But anyway, the point is, Longshot shows up. And he has no memory of who he is or where he came from, which, given the way the Longshot miniseries ended, implies something kind of tragic, which is that the rebellion he was going off to start in the Mojoverse, trying to retake it for the innocent slaves of the Spineless Ones, has completely, completely failed. Off-panel and between series, and this is going to happen to Longshot over and over and over. Longshot's story almost every time is a story of optimism in the face of impossible odds, a fade-out, and then off-camera failure, destruction, and devastation. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I love the character so much, because that mix of hope and optimism and absolute tragedy is immensely appealing to me. It reminds me kind of uh, this phrase from Conan, uh, Conan the Barbarian, talking about how Conan is a man of, what is it, like, uh, enormous mirth and gigantic Uh, sorrows. Gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just all these uh, sort of extremities of emotion. And I love that. I love it when everything is just turned up to 11 and just intense, like these epic ballads, you know? Would you say that Longshot treads the jeweled thrones of Earth under his sandaled feet? I don't know that I necessarily would, but that does sound awesome. I feel like he's more likely to try to make friends with them and then return them to their rightful owners. He's kind of the anti-Conan behaviorally. I guess he does get all the ladies. I mean, they both have their own kinds of mullet, depending on what artist you're looking at. It's a bob. We established this on the podcast, man. It is definitely a bob. (laughs) Sorry, I'm I'm not familiar with my podcast canon enough. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, yes, the point is Longshot is awesome. In fact, I remember which episode we established it in. That was in Mordenkainen's Marvelous Mutants. Oh, man. Because we were talking about Captain America and Barbarian Captain America in an Age Undreamed of. I suppose we were. Who also has a bob. Okay, well, the point is their haircuts are different, but they're both extremely uh, They both have bangs. Uh, There we go. So, um, anyway, the issue at hand... Right, the issue at hand is, again, Uncanny X-Men Annual number 10, into which Longshot has just popped via an interdimensional portal, followed by a large explosion of glittery goop. Yeah. And as, as this weird stuff is going on, the comic cuts to the Mojoverse, because Mojo and his Major Domo, whose name is Major Domo, are watching through Elizabeth Braddock's eyes. Like, that's why they installed the eyes in her, because now they have cameras on all this, like, uh, crazy action that's going on in the Marvel Universe. Not only that, but they're broadcasting it. Yeah. So Major Domo is, you know, being all, all critical about all the resources Mojo is spending on this. Oh my god, I just realized, have we seen Mojo in the Age of Reality TV? Because that's what this is. This is Mojo doing reality TV. Oh, it absolutely is, yeah. But this is in 1986. Yeah, this is some prescient stuff, no doubt. 
so Major Domo is complaining about all the resources this is taking up. And again, Major Domo is, is Mojo's sort of android assistant. Yeah, and Spiral's there as well. And Mojo's just like, Where's your sense of aesthetic hunger? Wonder! Glory! Have you no soul, budgeteer? To which Spiral responds, He's what you made him, Screwloose. As are we all. Of course, of course! Who would have it any other way? I am an artiste, my ever-twisted, twisting spiral. To make my reality's dream, cost is no object! Which kind of raises the question of whether cost is even remotely relevant here, because Mojo seems to have pretty much unlimited power and resources. Yeah, that's in fact when uh, Mojo drops Longshot into the danger room. And again, there's this detritus, this sort of goo that that spreads around, gets on all of the X-Men, including Psylocke, all of the adult ones, but then dissipates with no trace before they can get a sample of it. We don't know what it does until the next morning when Storm wakes up much, much younger than she was the night before. And all the other X-Men are as well, including, I should point out, Wolverine, because this is before it was revealed that he was very, very old. So he's just sort of like a teenager now. Yeah, in theory, this Wolverine should just look exactly the same as normal Wolverine. But no, maybe it's a proportional thing. But anyway, Storm is much younger. And at this point, all of the X-Men are looking and acting like teenagers, including Magneto. They're yelling. They're not really listening. And Kitty, who was with the X-Men, is is much, much younger. She's maybe, you know, six or seven. And um, so they're all just being really immature. And I also really enjoy that a lot of the female characters are just smitten with Longshot, who's in the medical bay. This and is this part is... of Longshot's power set, officially. The ladies love Longshot. The gentlemen also love Longshot, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, some of them do. And so the new mutants are like, what's going on? This is really weird. All the grownups are acting way less mature than us. Uh, I don't like this. And Doug and Warlock do, you know, what they've started to do at the slightest provocation, which is merge so that, that Doug can analyze the situation through Warlock's eyes, a perspective to which he is growing more and more used and somewhat addicted. Yeah. And they realize that, wait a minute, the energy signatures and the technology that we're seeing here, this is the same stuff that happened back in New Mutants Annual Number 2, which they presumably don't refer to as New Mutants Annual Number 2. But you never know. Now, the X-Men lack their adult restraint, and they decide they're just going to charge in. The new mutants stuck playing. The adults try to stop them, but the X-Men who still have their powers, who haven't de-aged to before they manifested, manage to stop them. Most notably Magneto, they steal a car and they charge off. Right. And that also includes, I should point out, Psylocke and Longshot. They go off with the X-Men, which, you know, no surprise, that's the team they will be very shortly joining. Right. They knock out the New Mutants. The New Mutants wake up. They cannot find the X-Men with Cerebro. They don't seem to be anywhere in the universe, or they've de-aged past mutancy. They're not sure which, and so they decide that they're going to be the grown-ups. And to do this, they get their graduation costumes. Yeah, so apparently, you know, Xavier gave the original five X-Men graduation costumes back in the Silver Age. Either he or Magneto had them ready for the New Mutants themselves for when they graduated, and we see them all for the first time. Boy, howdy, do we ever. I want to talk about these costumes, because they are universally atrocious. I'm not sure that I would agree with universally. That is true. Reigns and Bobby's are like borderline acceptable, but they're really dull. Like the ones that aren't notably hideous are nondescript. See, I'm actually going to put some love behind the costumes for uh, Magma and Magic. I like those a lot. Magic's is okay. Amara's is not okay. Amara looks like she has escaped from the Broadway cast of Cats. Dude, if Cats had like lava and magma uh, erupt from the Earth's core through the stage, it would be so much cooler. Clearly one of us is familiar with the wilder works of T.S. Eliot. I need to read all the T.S. Eliot because it's full of lava. I actually really love the idea of cats just turning into that. (laughs) It doesn't. But yeah, no, she looks so stupid. They all look so stupid. And again, like magic looks okay, but not very interesting, not very character specific. 
Rain's costume is not offensive, but it's super generic. Bobby's costume is not offensive, but it's super generic. It's a little bit disco, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that's a good touch. I think that's something that he would also appreciate. He could hang out with Power Man and Nightwing. It would be great. And Dazzler. Uh, yes, I love this plan. And Magnum P.I. Someone needs to write this book. But yeah, oh God, Cannonballs is really, really unfortunate. And Cyphers is really unfortunate. And Warlocks, Warlocks is baffling. Why does Warlock have a costume? His costume is basically that he turns into like a big buff superhero looking dude with a giant red cape. And it's it's actually hilarious. I always got the impression that he didn't have a costume. And he was like, well, I need to fit in. Um, How about this? You know what? Speaking of that, it's been a while since we've done an art challenge, so I'm going to issue a new art challenge to go with this issue. Can we call them Art Tomatoes? No. Oh, well, okay. Listeners, that's the second name. I say so. Nope. I'm going to put up a picture of these costumes in the visual companion to this post in the As Mentioned, and you will see how dubious they are. And I bet that a lot of you could do a lot better. So your challenge this week is send us your designs for one or more of the New Mutants redesigned graduation costumes. Make them work. Yeah. Now, I will say there are later graduation costumes that the New Mutants will wear for a while. Um, Not those. More like what they would have worn in this issue. The thing is, those are also still really bad. I'll, I'll stick those up in the as mentioned, too. Like, the New Mutants do not get good graduation costumes. And I think that's a shame because they're great kids and they deserve them. So I think we should give them some. That's right. I like this plan. So, yeah, they all uh, go off after the X-Men, figuring, well, I guess we're kind of the X-Men now because there aren't any of the previous ones. The dumb-looking X-Men. Let's do this. And they teleport away, and unsurprisingly, their teleport is hijacked by Spiral, who can do stuff like that, and they actually end up in a place we've seen before, that being the body shop in Delacorte Theater, which is a real-life theater. I believe they are specifically pulled into the New York Shakespeare Festival's production of A Comedy of Errors, and in the audience of this production are a number of more or less recognizable individuals who we will see in cameos across this. Walter and Louise Simonson are there. Walter and Louise Simonson are there specifically uh, sitting above the Central Park frogs from Thor from when Thor was a frog and he led them to victory over this dude with alligators and it was amazing and you should read it. We get a few cameos from the DC Universe. I think we've got Lois Lane and Clark Kent. Later on, actually, Carrie Kelly from The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, it's really My bizarre. favorite Robin. And of course, the Brat Pack from the last annual, they're in the audience as well, because sure, why not? Of course they are. And so at this point, Mojo just appears, you know, as himself. And I got to say, nobody draws Mojo like Art Adams. He is terrifying. Truth. Yeah. I think he's even scarier here than he is in Longshot. And Mojo has this ability to sort of enthrall people. And so the audience is just cheering and applauding. And Darla from the Brat Pack is saying that she thinks she's in love. And Mojo is just eating this up, much to the bitterness of Spiral, who, you know, sort of wants the spotlight for herself. Now, the X-Men, I believe, are reintroduced at this point, too. They are younger versions of them who Mojo has sort of remade with the idea that he's reduced them to kids and he's going to age them back up as these very different X-Men. They look very different. Um, They've got very different outfits, which, again, I want to talk about. And I want to talk about two of them in particular, and those are Wolverine and Magneto. Yeah. So Wolverine, um, I remember, Rachel, you were saying that you thought this was an homage to the Barry Windsor Smith Weapon X story, but in fact, this takes place before that story came out. Right. He looks similar. He's in a similar pose when we first see him. But the costume that really threw me was Magneto's because Magneto is wearing what looks like kind of nondescript olive drop with a red armband. And we were lucky enough when we were writing the outline for this episode and doing research to have a friend visiting us from out of town who is a librarian as a reference librarian, then Claire Miller. And Claire offered to help with research on this. And we're like, well, what do you know about military uniforms? Is this a reference to something specific? It is. It is definitely a reference to something specific. It is specifically the uniform of the Reich Labor Service from World War II. This is a Nazi organization, basically, according to Wikipedia, at least, that existed to help mitigate the effects of unemployment on the German economy, but also to militarize the workforce and indoctrinate the population. 
So that's kind of horrifying for, well, anyone to be wearing, but especially for Magneto to be wearing. Yeah, it's a subtle touch, and it's one that I could see not necessarily cluing in on. I mean, the armband is a big clue because I don't think there have been any other regimes where the uniforms involved a red armband. But the uniform is very specifically from that, I guess, with slightly different epaulets. The epaulets are either, I believe, uh, Finnish cavalry or British infantry epaulets. But mm-hmm. That's kind of not entirely relevant. Um, I'm going to say that that's rule of dubious cool here. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, Mojo, after briefly killing Spiral and presumably then resurrecting her, sticks these X-Men on the New Mutants to take them out. And even younger, these X-Men just kick the crap out of the New Mutants. And the X-Men are, of course, aging up throughout the fight very rapidly. And And having their mutant powers kick in as they do, and so becoming even more powerful. And it's not until Karma possesses Wolverine to sort of bring out his inner self to pull past this brainwashing, and Doug opens his mind to Psylocke so that she can see how much he loves her and come back to her senses that the tides begin to turn. And those two in combination, and Psylocke especially because she's a telepath, are able to eventually turn the rest of the X-Men, you know, return them to their true original selves. Yeah, it also helps that uh, Shadowcat, maybe inadvertently, maybe not, faces through Mojo while chasing magic, disrupting his control as well. So anyway, at this point, the tide turns. They all use basically a big team-up attack with everybody using their powers against Mojo, who then teleports away right as he's about to be finished off. As he is wont to do. And this actually reminds me of the last episode, the role-playing one, when we fought Lady Deathstrike as the last boss, and we did our big stupid team-up attack, and it was awesome. Yeah, that was fun. Man, I really want to do that again for another special. That was so ridiculously fun. It was great. And so uh, Spiral's left behind, and the X-Men threaten her into undoing everything that happened. Specifically, they threatened to kill her, which played really oddly to me. And it's not just the newcomers, or, or Wolverine, who, you know, does threaten to kill people. It's it's Psylocke and Wolverine and Storm who are telling her, we will kill you if you don't fix this. And they're very specific about it. This is not subtextual. And so, yeah, everything gets undone. It's a happy ending. The audience doesn't even remember what happened and they all head back to the X-Mansion and Longshot's there just, you know, being confused by things like water because once again, he's a blank slate and a very charming blank slate at that. The new mutants being teenagers and therefore having no sense of what is good and bad are disappointed to put away their god-awful terrible graduation costumes and return to their entirely decent and fairly well-designed new mutants default uniforms. Uh And Storm is pretty troubled because while she was Mojo's, you know, puppet, she had her powers back and now that everything's been undone, she doesn't. She does, however, cut her hair back into its mohawk style it had grown out when mojo aged her saying that you know she didn't want any changes on herself to be because of him if she was going to change she wanted to do it herself and psylocke looks a little sheepish and fails to mention that well i still have these robot eyes he gave me because she does not want to lose them, and she doesn't want the uh, sort of judgment of all the X-Men for deciding to keep them. And she still doesn't know what the readers do, which is that, again, they're broadcasting back to the Mojoverse. They are basically making her, you know, the cameraman for the X-Men reality show. As the issue concludes with a weird beat with Storm saying that the X-Men are somehow unique and that they were able to resist the programming, and not everyone is, including some of the new mutants. Because they're fundamentally heroic, and that's why Xavier recruited them, and that's why he recruited the original five, which isn't true at all. This issue is awesome, that ending is weird, But what I really like is that then, you know, as it ends all epically and heroically, we cut to a Hitchcock-esque still of Mojo's face and profile uh, with the logo for MGM, Mojo's Giant Movies. And then to a bunch of spineless ones applauding and cheering. Right. Including the Delacour Theater stuff, this has all been layers of a movie that exists primarily for the entertainment of the Mojoverse. I'm not sure Miles can resist the opportunity to read one last chunk of Mojo dialogue. Well, Major Domo, well? Mutter, 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 grumble, 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 cost, cost, cost. (sighs) Preliminary indications are that this will be your highest grossing success. 
Which means, I suppose, you'll want to do it again next year. Never! Oh, Domo, my Domo, my dear Philistine, have you no soul? Of course you don't! I didn't design one into you, why should I share that most unique part of myself? Silly boy, if only your power could be harnessed for good! I can't wait. Use your insight for something more than number-munchy crunching. They're heroes, Domo! But where would all that heroism be without someone truly nasty to properly test them? Thanks to me, their existence has purpose. That's why I'm the Lifebringer. A true artiste never repeats himself. That's why I'm leaving the lucky long shot with the X-Men. He'll win their hearts, and then I'll break them. His presence on Earth will infuriate Spiral delightfully. Teach her a lesson. She's a quick study, darling. She may learn more than you bargain for. More the better! And I never bargain. Do you hear, Domo? They love me! They adore me! And I make them pay for it! And I mentioned Mojo as sort of a twisted avatar of cartoon logic, and there's nowhere that that's more directly visible than in this last panel, where he holds up a severed pig head to say, Bidee, 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 that's all, folks, but I'll be back. Good God. Okay, guys, Doom is still my favorite voice, but Mojo is a very close second at this point. And on that cheerful note of existential horror, you've got questions. David Katzen asks in the comments on RachelOnMiles.com, For every dark, strange, and sometimes pretty frightening arc, New Mutants almost seems to rubber band its way into a very broad, silly story. And sometimes, ostensibly silly stories will have very dark underpinnings. Whereas the other 80s X-Books are more easily divided by Claremont's phases in his tenure, the New Mutants feels less bound by the limits of genre. It almost feels like New Mutants existed to buck the notion that comics had to be one thing. Was the book considered a playground for narrative experimentation in its time? Or was this simply the result of the book functioning in tandem with various other major titles of the day, as well as 80s trends? The simple answer is basically both. I think it's been a few episodes since we have recommended that you pick up a copy of uh, Sean Howe's Marvel Comics The Untold Story, so I'm going to do that once again, because how discusses this in some degree of depth. I believe it's something that also comes up on the Chris Claremont's X-Men documentary. New Mutants was liminal in terms of genre. It was also kind of an outlier in the X-Line, and so it wasn't bound by a lot of the genre constraints that limited a lot of superhero books. I mean, it was. It was a testing grounds. It was a place to experiment with the broadening of the X-Line and then also with, you know, the narrative options available. That said, it was also an incredibly well-selling book, and Jim Shooter, despite the fact that he was sort of known for really having his fingers in the writings of all of his writers, gave Claremont comparatively free reign. So since basically the book was, you know, going to be solid gold, people were going to buy it no matter what, that gave Claremont the freedom to kind of do whatever he wanted, because, you know, historically his track record had been very good, and he still made Marvel a lot of money. This is something you'll see shift in some really interesting ways over the years, and especially in the later years of the book as Simonson starts to edge off the property and it makes the transition to X Force, but we are not nearly there yet. Where we are is at um, what may be the objectively best question we have ever been asked. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Which X-Men would be most likely to accidentally anger a goose, or perhaps a flock of geese? Geese are rage-filled hellspawn and would be formidable enemies. Anonymous, you are amazing and we love you. Again, we had Claire here, and so we spent way too much time this morning researching this question. We also called in for help web developer and cartoonist and animator Rachel Neighbors, who has raised geese. And from the evidence, from what we discussed, from a number of references, including a manual on handling goose attacks in the state of Ohio, which we will post in the as mentioned for those of you whose lives it may be relevant, I have come to the conclusion that, you know, there are a number of factors in play. So the things most likely to anger geese have to do with territory and have to do with threatening behavior during their mating season. And geese are not subtle in their anger. Geese will basically tell you to fuck off if you are in their way. And they won't go after you unless you fail to pick up on fairly obvious clues. So. 
whoever this is, whoever's most likely to anger a flock of geese is going to need to be someone who won't pick up on those things or won't initially see the threat behavior of the geese as a significant danger or threat. Rachel Neighbors also mentioned that glowing eyes are a factor. And so I'm going to say based on that combination, you know, not seeing the geese as a threat, not necessarily being familiar with goose behavior based on their background and cues, and also the possibility of glowing eyes at the night, I'm going to say that the answer to this is probably cable. Wow. Okay, I'll buy that. I will say Warlock is probably a close second just because, again, he doesn't have that behavioral frame of reference or context. But at the same time, I also feel like he's the X-Men character most likely to be accidentally adopted by geese, which might (laughs) kind of balance that out. However, this isn't the only consideration. Right, because if we're talking about, you know, which mutant would be most likely to have had the greatest number of goose attacks? Well, or to have been attacked by geese at some point. We're looking at pure statistical odds. Right, so in that case, I want to go for, say, a mutant who's lived for thousands of years. What about En Sabah Nur, Apocalypse? I mean, he's been around for long enough that I feel like the odds are he must have suffered a goose attack at some point, probably quite a few of them. Well, and we wanted to check for the potential, you know, historical underpinnings of that, because again, we are experts and we take our responsibilities seriously, and what Claire clued us in on is that goose duck high were worshipped as sacred in ancient Egypt and, you know, the society he came from and against which he aggressively and regularly blasphemed. So again, there may be actually some narrative contexts for geese attacking Apocalypse. This may have deeper ramifications than we had originally considered. Okay, wait a minute. Cable, Apocalypse, here's the question I have. Is Mr. Sinister secretly a goose? You know, here's the other thing. Something else that came up in discussing this is that there's a third answer to this, which involves sort of reconfiguring the question, which has less to do with likelihood and more to do with which X character we'd most like to see attacked by geese. And for me, the answer to that is definitely Mr. Sinister. I feel like characters who it would be entertaining to see menaced by a flock of geese, or at least by a cluster of mating pairs. Again, according to Rachel, geese don't really attack as flocks, but but if there are groups who are nesting in similar areas, they will kind of come at you from multiple directions. I feel like Mr. Sinister having one of his intricate, complicated plans foiled by angry geese is up there on my wish list of happy places and thoughts. I'm going to say Dr. Doom for largely the same reasons. Also, he has a precedent of being defeated by small animals, namely squirrel girl squirrels. First of all, geese are not small. I don't know if you've ever seen a goose with its wings spread. I used to hang out at the park near Dark Horse Comics where wild geese nest, and they're really damn big. They are formidable. They're enormous. They are not comparable to squirrels. They don't move in ways that are comparable to squirrels. And second, Dr. Doom is a Batman-style villain. Like, he is someone who's prepared for everything, and I think Dr. Doom would know better than to disturb nesting geese. That's probably true. I feel like he has a great respect for nature. See, and Mr. Sinister would be blinded by his own hubris until it was too late. So there you have it. Rachel and Miles explain geese at length. Listeners, you're welcome. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast KaijuCast. Special thanks also this episode to our contributing experts Claire Miller and Rachel Neighbors. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more, including this week, information on avoiding and dealing with goose attacks. This podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free and it's made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become a subscriber, please check out the link at the top of our website. Next week, it's back to X-Factor as Louise Simonson takes the mantle of writer. And Apocalypse finally makes his way out of the shadows. (laughs) 